All right. Good morning. How you doing today? You glad to be in church? Hey, Amen. It's a good day. And I uh, want to say thank you so much for joining us today and worshiping. And just like Pastor Amanda said, we are just delighted that you're here and just want to greet you on behalf of our pastors as they're ministering in Florida. And uh, thank you for being here. If you're joining us online today, we are so glad. I know there are many people probably joining us online today, and we're honored that you're here. And we're grateful to God for the gift of technology. Amen? It's a good day to be alive. And so uh, limits are broken uh, by technology. And so if you're here today, join us online. Thank you for being here. And we just thank you for participating with us and uh, just lean in with us. And I believe that God's going to speak to you uh, just as he speaks to us uh, right here in uh, the sanctuary. It's a series that we're in called Uncommon. And uh, we did not know when we launched this series that we would enter into some of the most uncommon times that we have experienced in a while. And uh, if I'd have told you uh, last Tuesday that the NBA season would be suspended, that March Madness would be canceled, and that Disney World would be closed on Sunday, you would have told me I was crazy. And so I don't care what you make of them or what your opinion of them is, one thing we can agree on, these are uncommon times. And uh, regardless of, of all the different ways that people think and, and feel about that, uh, one of the things that I've learned as a follower of Jesus is that when we come into surprising times, when we come into uh, things that we didn't see coming, things that we didn't expect, one of the things that uh, as you allow yourself, I, I believe the Bible teaches this, and it's not what I'm going to teach on this morning, but I want to just plant this seed of thought in you that as you really train yourself spiritually to perceive that in times of uncertainty and when things get shaken, you can become a person that begins to see the hand of God in ways that are revealed. So sometimes the shaking moves things out of the way so that you can see what God's doing in a clearer way than you could have before the shaking started. I got three amens right there, but I thought that was, that was pretty good. That helped me. So uh, I want to encourage you uh, anytime that you don't see things coming, anytime you get surprised in life, maybe it's your personal life, or maybe it's you're living in a nation that just seems shaken and surprised. Uh, let's be the people of God and let's just say, Holy Spirit, help me to see what you're doing. Because I can tell you, the whole nation, the whole world might be surprised, but there's one person who's not surprised. His name is Jesus and we belong to him. We might not have seen this coming, but Jesus did and we belong to him. And the book of Hebrews tells us that when everything that is shaken can be shaken, there will be one thing that will not be shaken, and that is the kingdom of God and everyone who is connected to the kingdom of God. So it's in times like this that we're grateful that we're connected to the kingdom of God. We're connected to Jesus. Amen? Amen. So I want you to grab your Bibles. What I love about the Bible is that it has something to say to us uh, for every kind of time and every moment. And uh, Bishop and I were talking this week, and uh, even on uh, social media, uh, he mentioned uh, to me that we would have never imagined that the message that he and I planned 
uh, for me to share on this Sunday uh, would be this message, and it would end up coming in a week like we're experiencing. So uh, in, in a really, really profound way, I feel like God has prepared us and given us a word. Um, just like Pastor Amanda said, um, it's, it's amazing how much life we can get when we just turn to the Word of God. Amen? And so what we wanted to talk about today is uh, in the Uncommon series, we want to talk about uncommon love. Uncommon love. And I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4 and to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 1 John chapter 4 and uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And just just one more comment by way of just how we're going to function as a church body and, and do our best. Uh, thank you for paying attention to our communications. We communicate to you in as many ways as we can to try to get information out to you. Um, I, w- I think it's important that, you know, you know that as a leadership team, uh, what we are doing is we're trying to seek the, the mind and the heart of God to operate with wisdom. And, uh, you know, we're not consulting just um, simply uh, the news to make those decisions. Our church is blessed with uh, lots and lots of medical professionals that serve in that industry. And so they're able to provide us uh, information that is not hyped or spun. And uh, we want to do our best to say, how do we be the people of God in this moment? And I'm going to talk to you about that today in our message, but I just want you to know that our heart as a church is to make any decision uh, that aligns with cooperating with uh, our society, but uh, lines up with wisdom. Uh, But I think you know this about us uh, by now, that we will not, and we're going to read scriptures today, uh, what we will not do is we will not respond out of fear. And we don't want you to respond out of fear. And so we're very careful and very prayerful about how we do that and how we communicate that. And we just want to encourage you that no matter how you respond as a person who is a Jesus person, the one thing that we want to make sure we do not adopt into our life is a spirit of fear. Can you say amen to that? And so that just sort of leads right into what I want to talk to you about. First John chapter 4 and verse number 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Just one brief comment on the very first verse there, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. 
um, so that you can catch another possible application of that um, other than the one you would naturally think of about the day of judgment being a day at the very end of time. The day of judgment is, is the same word that we get the word crisis from. And so it's one of those words that can have multiple meanings. It's not an either or thing. But how many of you know anytime you get in a moment of crisis, it's a day of judgment or it's a day of decision? And so one of the ways to read this verse is to understand that when we're perfected in love, when we hit crisis moments, we can have boldness. I know, I felt pretty good. That's not even in my notes, but I'm not going to preach on that. But I I think like that ought to be a distinguisher of the people who are being perfected in love is when a crisis hits, we don't operate in fear, but we operate in boldness and love. Amen. I didn't say arrogance. I said boldness. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 7. You probably have got this one tattooed on your forehead or backwards so that you can read it in the mirror. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. So let's talk about uncommon love this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We look to you right now. Uh, We ask you to come by your spirit. Be with us as the people of God. Thank you for speaking to us words of life today, words of peace, words of grace. And I pray that as your word comes forth, that it would be opened up by your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would see with eyes things that we haven't seen before, uh, that we would learn and grow and be challenged in you. And I pray that you would empower and equip the Gate Church today to be the people of God in Oklahoma City in this moment, uh, Lord, in ways that bring great fruit to your kingdom. Our heart is to be your people and to bear witness to who you are. And we ask you to help us to do that in powerful and fruitful ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So these verses that are very familiar to us in the New Testament draw a contrast and a comparison between love and fear. And that is an interesting contrast because most people, if you ask them what is the opposite of love, they would not say fear, they would say hate. And so either you love or you hate, and hate is commonly understood as the opposite of love. But Scripture does not draw that contrast so starkly as it does the contrast between love and fear. When we see Scripture doing this, we see it trying to teach us something about the essence of the human condition, the root problem of uh, sinful humanity is not actually our hatefulness, it's actually our fearfulness. And so when you read Scripture that way, you begin to understand that Adam and Eve in the garden, their first response to falling into sinfulness was this response that explained to God, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was naked and I was afraid. Why are you hiding? Where did you go? I was afraid. Why are you afraid? And Adam says, I'm afraid. And God said, who told you? Who taught you 
how to be afraid. Who taught you? Where did that come from? That's not how I created you. And so we know that hate and violence and uh, all the different forms that hate can take are not what God is. We know that hatefulness is, has nothing to do with the character of God. But what these scriptures tell us is that hate is simply a symptom. It is simply a manifestation of fear. So when I see a hateful person, I can know that I'm seeing a fearful person. Anytime somebody is responding in hate, they're actually just responding with the fruit of fear. And that is the opposite of love. So we can say it this way, you can't hate and love at the same time, but you can't be afraid and love, or you can't love someone that you're afraid of. And the problem that that puts on us or the weight that that puts on us as Christian is that God asks us to love everybody. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's pretty basic, right? So if I'm commanded to love everybody, that means I can't be afraid of anybody. And it means I can't stereotype anybody. I can't uh, develop attitudes that are hateful and prideful about anybody because God wants me to live in love and not fear. When we think about love and fear, we actually come to realize that my life is always rooted in either love or fear. These are the two places that I root my life in. So my life is rooted, my security is rooted in fear. My motivation is either fear or love. Another way to say that is that my decisions are either rooted in fear or love. Decisions that are rooted in fear will always cause me to shrink back and protect myself. Decisions that are rooted in love will always cause me to think of other people before I think of myself. I'm trying to teach this morning. Are you doing okay? I don't know whether we'll shout this morning or not, but we're going to learn something. Amen? So I have to ask myself, am I living a life that is, that is uh, coming out of the, the deep well and the fountain of fear, or am I living my life out of the deep well and the fountain of love? Am I thinking of other people, or am I thinking of myself? Am I thinking of protecting me, or am I thinking of giving myself away? So, um, fear is the essential human condition. Let me show you a verse uh, that illustrates that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 15, it tells us what Jesus came to do. A little bit of a different spin on what Jesus came to do. So, let's look at that. Do you guys have that? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 15. Um, Let's go to verse number 14. Can we go to 14? I might have sent the wrong one. Inasmuch that the children have taken part of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Hold it right there, hold it right there. 14, watch this. So Jesus comes to the earth so that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the devil who had the power of death, watch this, and release those, verse number 15, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, let me, let me just help you out and help you understand something. You fit into that category. 
See, you might have, we have, we have different phobias and we get phobias. We all have a phobia, right? Some people are afraid of water. Some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of spiders. Some people are afraid of snakes. Some people are afraid. Of, let me just tell you what you're afraid of. You're not afraid of water. You're afraid of drowning. If you were afraid of water, you would die because you would never drink water and you need water to live. You're not afraid of heights. You're afraid of falling off of something high because you don't want to die. You're not afraid of spiders. You're afraid of spiders that can bite you. You're afraid of being bitten. You're afraid of poison. You're not afraid of snakes. You're afraid of being bitten with something that is poisonous that can kill you. And you say, yeah, but I'm afraid of a garden snake. Well, that's how fear works. See, it's not the fear of snakes. It's the fear of death that causes you to imagine something that is actually harmless. And then you become overcome with fear. And that's how fear works. That's why it's important that Christians understand fear has no place. Everybody say no place. No place in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not traffic in fear. Fear is not one of Jesus's tools. Fear is not in his toolbox. It is not a kingdom of God tool. It is a kingdom of darkness tool. This is important because as a Christian father and as a Christian husband and as a Christian leader, that means fear is off limits for me. I don't motivate people by fear. I don't manipulate people by fear. I don't get in the fear game. I don't have fear currency. That's not a part Part of my country. I don't use that currency. Well, then what do you use? Because the world runs on fear. Everybody knows if you want to get people excited, get them afraid. If you want to get people unified, get them afraid. If you want to get people to vote, get them afraid. If you want to get people to do anything, but in the kingdom of God, we say no to fear. We motivate by love. We operate by love. We lay our life down and people say, well, you're going to lose the game if you live by love. And we say, we'll happily lose the game because we serve somebody who apparently lost the game and went into the grave. But when you live by love, God will raise you up again and say, that's my son. That's my daughter. I don't have to live by fear. And, and it is so important that we understand that Jesus struck fear at the root. Do you see what Jesus did? He recognizes that the real human problem is the fear of death. So Jesus shows up on earth, an earth that is over, it is ravished with fear. Everyone is afraid of everyone and they're afraid of everything. And here comes God in the flesh and Jesus essentially shows up on earth and he says, what's going on down here? And everyone says, well, everyone's afraid. And so they're killing each other and they're slandering each other and they're devouring each other. And Jesus says, well, what's everyone afraid of? And he sizes up the problem. He says, what you're afraid of is dying. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die for you and show you that in me, there's nothing to be afraid of. Can I get an amen this morning? So Jesus marches into the grave and he comes back up out of the grave. And he says, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm the alpha 
and the Omega. I'm he who was dead, but now I'm alive again. And I have the keys to death, Hades, and the grave. You don't know it. Maybe you don't know it. And I, I work with young people a lot, and they, don't, they aren't afraid of death because they don't think they're going to die. That's because they've not woke up in the morning and their knee hurt yet. They don't know what it's like to start feeling pains in their body that start to tell us you do have a time clock going on inside. When you're 24, you just never feel it. You don't know it's there. But everybody sooner or later begins to realize, I got a time clock. But Christians understand it doesn't matter if my time clock is going bananas. I have nothing to be afraid of because I'm connected to Jesus. And Jesus has already been through death and on the other side. And so Hebrews says he delivered us from, watch this, bondage that is the fear of death. That means as long as I'm in fear, I'm in bondage. It's interesting to me, Lord help me not to get off of tangents. It's just interesting to me that, the, the, that we, we are a society who prizes our freedom. We love, to, we love to remind ourselves that we are a free people. When I was a kid in elementary school, we would just say that all the time. It's free country. Like if you tried to tell me I couldn't play tetherball and, you know, and, and I had to play foursquare, I'd say it's free country. It's like American kids at five get programmed. It's free country. Could do whatever I want. Well, that's fine. Thank God for America. Thank God for these freedoms. But according to the Bible, if I'm in fear, no matter how free my country is, I'm in bondage. Y'all doing all right? So <clears throat> the early church brings us a lot of uh, illumination uh, to this. And so the church has always been Watch this. The church has always been a love-driven community that contrasts with a fear-driven world. The church has always been a love-driven community that contrasts with a fear-driven world. C.S. Lewis said, in a world that's full of fear, we need a fearless church. We need a fearless church. We need people who've been delivered from Fear. In 1 John chapter 4, when it says that perfect love cast out fear, that phrase cast out, does that sound familiar to you? When Jesus in the Gospels cast out a demon, that's the same Greek word. So perfect love drives out fear out of my life, just like the power of Jesus drives demons out of people that are full of darkness. So when I open myself up to God's perfect love, it just dry, it casts fear out of me. Perfect love performs an exorcism on my fears. And John says, without putting condemnation on us, John says, if you're still wound up in all kinds of fear, then you need Jesus to perform an exorcism on your fears. You say, well, what do I need? You just need a little time with Jesus. You need a little bit more of perfect love coming to maturity in your life and setting you free from fear. So what does that look like? It's fascinating to me how 
how many similarities uh, we can find. So in the Roman church, say in the first 100 or 200 years of the church, we'll see if this makes any contemporary relevance to us at all. The Roman church and the Roman world was full of plagues. Epidemics regularly decimated cities and regions. And uh, ancient people didn't understand germ theory or disease, but they knew enough to know that if you were in the city, you were going to get sick. And so when there would be a plague hit a Roman city, everybody would just flee the cities and they would just take off because it was safer to be outside of the cities. But in the early days of the followers of Jesus, they had an interesting response to the plagues and the epidemics of their time. They saw it as a need, as, a, as an opportunity to serve their city in a way that they didn't have before. So when an epidemic hit a Roman city, everyone would flee except the sick people and the Christians. And, and people would wonder, after the epidemic had ended, the Christians were still in the city, and what were they doing? They were taking water and food and medical supplies and prayer to their sick neighbors who were highly contagious. So there's a historian named Rodney Stark who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he makes this interesting observation that one of the reasons that the church grew so fast in the first couple of hundred years is because the epidemic would come and then it would go. Then everyone would come back to the city that had fled the city and the Christians had been healing and giving care to the sick. So then you had a bunch of pagan priests in pagan temples who they all hit the high road. So then where does everybody wanna go to church? To the place where the pastor left the city because he was afraid of the disease? Or do you wanna go with these Jesus people who were praying for everybody while everybody was running away? So the church started growing because the Christians saw problems differently than the rest of the world. Jesus' people are people who see problems differently than the rest of the world. And when the world responds in panic, we respond in service. We respond in ministry. We respond in love. And when the world says that's foolish, you could harm yourself. You might get hurt. We say we're people of wisdom, but we're also people of love. We're not going to allow wisdom to become a guise that we can hide behind that's actually parading as fear. See, we want to be wise, but we don't want to be fearful. So my wisdom may say, I may need to take some precautions, but I will not let it say I can't help somebody. I'm going to trust Jesus that if my heart is to minister and serve somebody, that Jesus can take care of me even if I get a disease, even if I get threatened, even if I get harmed. Jesus is watching over me. Jesus calls me his own. Am I doing all right? And so uh, the way that the early church viewed this thing, I was meditating on this uh, this week as I was getting ready to preach. And so uh, they sort of viewed it as if they saw Hebrews chapter 2 as sort of this picture of the world that is infected with a virus. And that's how, that's how those guys really thought about sin. I'd like for you to think about sin like that, is that the world is infected with the virus and the virus is sin and fear and death. 
And so the world is infected with a virus. Somebody sent me a, a really interesting diagram about how viruses spread and how we can contain them. You might have seen it. It's got little dots and they bounce around. And when a red dot touches a blue dot, the blue dot turns red because that person got sick. And it's a really interesting diagram. But I was thinking about that and that's kind of what the world was like. And the world was just bouncing around and people were fearful and it was just blue dots just bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing around. But what the early church believed is that what God did to solve that dilemma is that if the world was infected by a bacteria or by a virus that was infecting everyone so that they were just moving, then Jesus came to the earth as the God man and he was essentially the antivirus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, y'all ain't, y'all ain't help. See, when you get your computer, there's viruses out there on the internet. And if you get yourself a good antivirus on your computer, then when the virus tries, I'm not an IT person, but what I understand is when that virus tries to get in there, your virus antivirus raises up a standard against the virus. And then the virus might get in your computer, even though I'm on the same network as you, but my antivirus. So Jesus comes as this antivirus and he plants himself as a seed in humanity so that we would be worried because Jesus didn't stay, he left. But before he left, he planted the antivirus in 12 disciples. Then he got 120 in an upper room and he said, before I go, I wanna make sure you got the antivirus. So then all these infected people that were infected with the Holy Ghost and power started walking around and touching people that were full of fear and full of sin and full of selfishness and the virus began to be reversed because Jesus came to set us free from fear and sin. How many of you are grateful that Jesus didn't come just to give you a one-way ticket to heaven when you die? Jesus came to give you God's kind of life, to give you something on the inside of you. You might have got a flu shot, but if you got Jesus, you got something better than a flu shot. Now, we got to be careful with this analogy, but you know, if you get a flu shot, you get a little more confidence. Now, I'm going to have some nurse email me and tell me how I'm getting this wrong, but it's okay. I'm just preaching right now. Leave me alone. If you get a flu shot and you run up on somebody that's got the flu, you're a little less nervous that you can catch the flu. And you might feel a little more confident about taking that person some Theraflu, like visiting that person's house. Like you might not have to wrap yourself up in a Lysol soaked bandage, you know. You can go in their house and say, you know what? I wanna get you what you need. If, you're, if your husband or your wife has the flu and you had a flu shot, you might not have to quarantine them to the bedroom. And I think there ought to be something about what Jesus does in our life that gives us a little bit more boldness to confront the dangers of the world, to say, you know what? 
I realize I'm mortal. I realize I'm flesh. I realize I'm susceptible to everything just like everybody else. But I've got something on the inside of me that allows me to root myself in love and not fear. And love is never, watch this, love is never drawing back and protecting itself. That is not the posture of love. The posture of love is always opening up and giving itself away. Amen. Amen. So another thing real quickly, and then I want to show you a couple of diagrams and then I'll let you go. You doing okay? We always think of love as the Greek word agape. And we think that's the best love and the highest love and the God kind of love, and it is. But this really challenged me when I realized that <clears throat> one of the ways that, that, that Scripture talks about that is agape is God's kind of love. And so here's some encouraging, here's something encouraging for you, I hope, is that what God does is God says, I want you to be a person of peace. But God says, I recognize you don't really have peace. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, my peace I give to you. So here's the thing on your Christian journey, you, you ought to feel inadequate lots of times because God's going to ask you to be an uncommon person. He's going to ask you to be a supernatural person. And you're going to say, I don't have what it takes to do that. But here's what God says. Oh, I'll give it to you. I'm going to give you my peace. I want you to be a joyful person. I don't feel joyful. Jesus says, well, here, here, have some of my joy. That's literally true. Jesus is literally saying, I want you to hear, not Bryce's joy. I want you to have Jesus's joy. <laughs> Jesus's joy doesn't go up and down. Same thing with love. So you, God says, I want you to be a loving person. You say, well, that's really not me. <laughs> I took a personality profile test and it didn't say loving at the top. I just don't excel in that area. It's not my spiritual gift. Well, love is not a spiritual gift, honey. It's a spiritual fruit. It's not optional. It's an essential ingredient. It is who God is. So what God does is he says, I need you to love everybody unconditionally. And we say, I can't do that. And God says, here. Take a little bit of my love into your heart because the reason you can't do that is because you're afraid. But perfect love casts out fear. And if you get some of my love working in you, your fear will get out of the way and you'll become a more loving person. So in the, in the scriptures, we see this progression take place, and they're going to illustrate this for us with a diagram. So in the Old Testament, you remember um, that, that God said to Israel in the Old Testament, he said, love your neighbor. Everybody say, love your neighbor. Now, love your neighbor is a very important, uh, you know, Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love your neighbor. But I just want to be honest with you. Usually loving your neighbor is actually, it's, it's, it's doable. Like God kind of tries to get us off on a good start here. It's like training wheels, you know, just the person who lives next to you, try and love them. And so Israel kind of goes about that business and, you know, they probably get like a C, you know, they do okay. But then how many of you know, God keeps pushing the envelope. So like if you were in the nation of Israel and you were in the tribe of Judah, there was also the tribe of Dan. 
and the tribe of Naphtali and the, and the tribe of Reuben. And so different tribes, right? How many of you know there's different tribes? And everybody might be, you know, in your nation, but they're not necessarily in your tribe. I'm preach to America right now. Everybody might be an American, but they may not be my tribe. So what God says next is he says, I want you to love all them people that aren't in your tribe. So I want you to love those other folks that aren't in your tribe, that aren't your neighbor, but they're a part of your nation. So he says, I want you to love it. And Israel kind of says, well, man, that's a little harder than just loving my tribe because I like my tribe. That's my people. I'm trying to make it plain. And then God stretches them. So watch this. Here's, here's the deal. Let's go back to the circles. Just, just two. Love your other tribe. Thank you very much. Now watch. See that little white space in between there? You see that little boundary? I didn't design that. But I asked them. My, my lovely sister helped me design this. And I made sure that we had a little white boundary. Because you know what that white boundary represents? That represents a boundary of fear. So those people in my other tribe, I'm not as comfortable with them as I am with my neighbor. And so God says, I want you to cross that boundary of fear. How do I do that? Well, perfect love casts out fear. And then when you say, okay, God, I'm going to open myself up a little bit more and I'm going to love somebody from the other tribe. Then God says, good job. Let's see the next one. Then God says, how are you doing with that other tribe thing? How about love the immigrant? Oh, doggone. Why is that in the Bible? That complicates the political discourse in so many ways. So, so now God says, watch this. The immigrant is the person who lives in your nation, but he's not one of your nationality. So he moved in with you. And that's hard because, you know, he didn't really, he ain't been here that long. So Israel, I'm just talking about Israel. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Israel. Don't worry, just relax. I'm just reading the Bible. This is what happened with Israel. People get nervous. I'm just talking about Israel. If you don't think that I'm about to talk about you, then you don't know how preaching works. But anyway, so we're just talking about Israel right now. So Israel says, man, that, that gal is a Moabite. She can't be coming up here eating our bread. She can't be coming up here bringing her lamb for sacrifice. God said, wait, 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 wait. Why don't you treat the immigrant like they were one of you? And then this is what God says, because you used to be an immigrant. You, you, you remember when you lived in Egypt? You remember when you didn't have a home? You remember when you was wandering around the wilderness? I'm preaching right now. So then Israel says, okay, 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 fine, fine, fine. We'll love the immigrant. And then Old Testament says, how about this? Why don't we just love the foreigner? Now the foreigner is different than the immigrant because the foreigner don't even live with us. He's that other guy that's trying to get more arrows than us so that he can come over here and shoot us up. And God says, how about love that guy? And that's where the Old Testament stops. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong calisthenic session for Old Testament Israel. I mean, by the time they get through the prophets telling them that God actually wants you to love the foreigners, they're worn out. They're like, that is too much for us. Thank you very much. We are not good at this. And then here comes Jesus. When Jesus starts going down Matthew chapter five, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, 
you've heard it said. And then Jesus goes, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's how the Old Testament was interpreted. But Jesus says, but I say unto you, love your enemy. Now, hold on a doggone minute, Jesus. How is this going to work in the world? And here's what Jesus says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Watch this. And you will be children of your Father in heaven. Holy ghost, what in the world is going on? So, Jesus is saying, if you want to be like your Father then you need to engage in loving your enemies. And that just leaves us spinning until the apostle Paul comes around and explains to us, y'all ain't figured out how this worked. You were an enemy of God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does God do with his enemies? He lays down his life for them. He loves them with an unconditional love. And Jesus says, you want to be like your father? Then love your enemies. I lose in my amens left and right up here, but I'm trying my best. Y'all doing okay? So watch this. At every boundary, Israel had to confront her fear and choose love over fear. She didn't do this perfectly, but God keeps on calling us to be Jesus' people. If you think that the Old Testament uh, was challenging, then just welcome yourself right on into the new creation, new covenant people who've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who are full of the love of God, who are filled with the fullness of God, and welcome to being a witness for Jesus in your world. Are you ready? Love your neighbor, New Testament style. Love your conservative neighbor. Love your liberal neighbor. Pastor Josh, I ain't got no one amen right there. Pastor Josh, I am personally confronting a fear boundary right now. I'm scared. I feel like I might've made a mistake with my diagram but I'm gonna live in love and keep crossing the boundaries. That person ain't a part of my tribe. I'm about to tell the media team, scrap that diagram, just forget it. Love your liberal neighbor, your conservative neighbor. Love your Muslim neighbor. Love your Hindu neighbor. Don't, don't go to the next one, don't go to the next one. Oh, we're not ready for that, we're not ready for that. The media team's pushing me. Watch that media team. That's that media team. What, what does that mean? That means that those are people who aren't yet a part of your nation. What nation are you a part of? Oh, we're part of America. No, no, no. Actually, you're a part of the Jesus nation. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. I think I read that somewhere. So, so that's my nation, right? And I want people to join my nation, but my response to them up until they join my nation is not to throw rocks at them, is not to try to win arguments with them, is not to try to prove them wrong, is not to try to pick a fight with them. My object is to love them into my nation. Because I don't operate by fear. I'm not a fear person. I'm a love person. Yeah. 
I don't operate by guilt and shame. Those are the devil's tools. I live by love. So we love our Hindu neighbor, our Muslim neighbor. We love our gay neighbor. We love our straight neighbor. Listen, I'm going to give you a few. You can run as far and wide as you want with this. Amen. Just pick whatever category of neighbor that you feel a boundary to. That's the point. See, I'm not trying to get political on you. I'm just trying to show you some areas where there might be a little fear rise up. There might be a little bit, I'm not like that. That's different than me. I'm uncomfortable with that. Guess what? Perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love says, you know what? I don't understand it. Perfect love doesn't even say I fully get it. But what perfect love does say, I'm not going to let fear stop me from loving you. I am a child of my father in heaven. What does God do? God loves everybody. God loves everybody indiscriminately. God doesn't hold back his love. He doesn't say, I love Lauren a lot and I love Jason a little. He says, I love everybody the same. Be children of your father in heaven. Amen. Now, if I hadn't scratched your itch yet, then just hold on because we're going to keep working. Love your millennial neighbor. Love your boomer neighbor. Now, I'm about to say something, and I'm going to confess before I say it, that this preacher got convicted, and now I'm going to pass my conviction your way. Here's what I want to say. I wrote it down so I could say it well. Disparaging talk about different generations is unchristian talk. It is depersonalizing, stereotyping, scapegoating, and demeaning language that has more in common with the satanic spirit than it does with the spirit of Christ. What is the church doing entering into generation wars? I, I want to call up Titus to the stand and say, Titus, what do you have to say about that. And Titus would say, older women ought to be taking younger women and teaching them how to live godly lives. Younger men ought to be honoring the older men. There ought to be none of this. Well, you know, the problem with those millennials is. Here's the problem with that. I don't, I don't mind if you have an issue, but the problem with the the problem with those millennial statement is is that it's depersonalizing. Why don't you sit down with a millennial and say to them, you know, I really care about you and I've observed some things in your life. Would you receive a couple of suggestions I have? That might make a difference. But if you just spout off on Facebook about what's wrong with this upcoming generation, you're not helping a thing. And now my where are my millennials at? Lest I let anybody off the hook with your little okay boomer jokes. The millennial crowd's getting quiet. 
How about you change that language? How about you appeal to fathers and mothers and say, you know what? It doesn't really help me when you treat me this way or say this, but I want to learn from you because you've been walking with God for 40 years and I have no idea how to walk with God from 40 years. Could I maybe learn something from you? Maybe in the kingdom of God, maybe in the church, we could cross some fear boundaries. Maybe we could find somebody who has a different way of seeing things than we do and sit down with them for coffee and learn something from one another if we learn how to live in love. Amen. You doing okay? According to Jesus, our spiritual growth and maturity is best measured by how we love. Say that again. You know, I, I work a lot in trying to help people grow in their spiritual maturity. And uh, I've learned this. You know, we do this in church a lot. We just try to measure. If you try to measure somebody's spiritual maturity, you say, you know, are you reading your Bible every day? Yeah, yeah, I read my Bible this morning. Are you praying every day? Well, I pray in the shower on my way to work. Well, praise God, you're praying, reading your Bible. That's good. Then you're probably growing spiritually. I want to say, well, maybe we ought to think about that a little bit. Now, Pastor Jay said we aren't supposed to read our Bible and pray every day. I did not say that. Stop that. I just wonder if we started leading people in loving well beyond their fears, if they would grow more than reading three verses with their coffee every morning. I don't know. I'm not saying don't do the other. I'm just saying if you read your Bible and you don't ever stretch yourself in love, according to Jesus, you're not really growing that much. I mean, if you think you read your Bible every day, Jesus looked at the Pharisees who memorized their Bible by the time they were 12. And he said, you are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Now, how would you like to have Jesus as your pastor? Jesus said, you are a son of the devil and you make your disciples twice as much a son of hell as you are. Wow, Jesus. Those were people who were reading their Bibles all the time. But here's the problem with the Pharisees. And I think it is a problem with the Pentecostal charismatic stream of the body of Christ is watch this. We love to read our Bibles and we love to encounter the Holy Spirit. There's never been a group of people who love to encounter the presence of God. But guess what? Encountering the presence of God is not meant to make me feel good and get a revelation. Encountering the presence of God is meant to open me up to be a more loving person. That's the purpose so that I leave different. I see people different. I love people better and more holy because I encountered the presence of God. I'm concerned that we got a bunch of people that are just addicted to encounters. Wonderful. Get all you can, but just make sure it's causing you to start crossing some boundaries. It's stretching you in love. Amen. Now, Peter, I'm going to tell you a story about Peter and then we'll be done. Look at your neighbor and tell him he's almost done. You remember Peter, Peter, the disciple, just going to tell you a story about Peter. You guys can come to the keyboard if you want. Just to prove that I'm almost done, I called the keyboardist. <clears throat> Peter is a disciple. He gets it wrong a lot. He gets it so wrong that Jesus has to have a special meeting with Peter on the beach after Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter gets a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. And he's like, hey, Peter, you know, you really messed up. And Peter's like, I know I messed up and I'm really sorry. And Jesus says, do you love me? 
And Peter says, yeah, you know I love you. And so three times, Jesus and Peter have this, do you love me exchange? Now, if I was Peter, that'd make me a little bit insecure because Jesus asked me like three times in a row, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so Peter gets restored into ministry. It's a beautiful story. And, and there goes Peter right into the book of Acts, just right out of John 21, off the beach, into the book of Acts. 40 days later, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He preaches, 3,000 people get saved and the revival's happening and Peter's preaching. Next thing you know, Peter's shadow is healing people. And Peter's just going on, right? He's going on. His circle got bigger, right? But it didn't get all the way mature. And you get to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter's been preaching, healing people, being used by God. How many of you know you can be fruitful in your circle, but you're still limited to your circle? You still, you still haven't crossed the boundary. So God sends an angel to Peter on a rooftop. And he shows him all these animals and he says eat them and Peter says oh not me no sir no sir not eating that no you got the wrong guy here I'm a faithful Jew won't eat that stuff and so the angel says again eat it it's clean can't do that can't do that hey Peter why don't you go down to Cornelius's house feed my sheep feed my sheep Peter was feeding the sheep that he thought were Jesus' sheep. But he didn't know there were sheep that Jesus thought were Jesus' sheep, but Peter didn't think they were Jesus' sheep. He said, well, I can't go to Cornelius' house. It's not lawful for me to enter into his house. He started quoting the scripture to Jesus. I can't do that because it's not lawful for me to enter into his house and to eat with them. And so watch this. This is a fascinating, where, where is that? Acts chapter 10 and verse number um, 28. I wrote this down. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 28. Here's Peter. He walks into a Gentile home. They've gathered together to hear the gospel. Pastor Josh, this is what Peter says. First words out of his mouth. You know it's not lawful for me to be here with you folk. Seriously, you know, it's not lawful for me to be here and to keep company with you, people from another nation. You people who are different than me, it's not lawful for me to be here. I shouldn't be here doing this. I might taint myself. But God has shown me, basically, God's twisting my arm. Now, I just want to suggest that this is probably not the approach that they teach you in mission school about how to approach people with the gospel. His introductory statement is, I shouldn't be here, y'all are unclean, and I might contaminate myself by being here. But I'm gonna preach the gospel to you anyway. And then Peter lays into his gospel message, and he does an okay job. But before he gets too far into it, what happens is, you can read the story yourself, the Holy Spirit just interrupts him. Because I think the Holy Spirit got nervous about what Peter was about to say. So he said, let me just do this. Let me just fall on everybody. They'll start speaking in tongues and Peter will get the message that these people aren't less than him. These people are outside of his boundary. He's still got fear in him and perfect love needs to drive out all the fear in him so that the kingdom can go forth. And so the apostle Peter is still wrestling halfway through his ministry with these issues of boundaries of fear. It doesn't mean Peter wasn't a Christian. It doesn't mean he wasn't a good pastor. It doesn't mean he wasn't a good whatever. It just means that, watch this, 
perfect love. What is perfect love? Perfect love is mature love. You see, what God put in you when you got saved was a seed. And God is, is, is absolutely irrevocably committed to that thing that he planted in you becoming mature and ripe. It's like a fruit or it's like a it's like something that has to ferment over time and get better. Jesus called it new wine. And so it takes time for it to come to completion and maturity. And you don't need to get discouraged. You don't need to get, uh, you know, down on yourself. But what you need to recognize is that the Holy Spirit is always inviting you to grow in love. The Holy Spirit is always inviting you to be a person of uncommon love. So what do we do? If fear and love are opposites, what do we do as Christians on a week when our whole society gets struck with fear? Let me tell you what we don't do. What we don't do is we don't look down our nose at them and tell them how silly they are because they're afraid. That's not what love does. Love says, I'm sorry you're afraid. How can I help you? How can I serve you? I'm not afraid. I'm not arrogant. But I just have a relationship with Jesus that gives me confidence and peace and security in all things. And so because of that, I would love to help you. Can I bring you groceries to your house this week? Is there something I can do for you? Is there some way that I can serve you? Because that's what love does. Love serves. Love opens itself up. Love gives itself away. Love doesn't shrink back in self-protection. Love moves out in ministry and self-giving love. And I feel like that there's many of us here who the Holy Spirit would just love to just show us, hey, there's a boundary right there. And I want to give you grace today to cross that boundary and become a more loving person. Whatever it is, you know, wherever you're at, whatever your boundary is, but there's, there's lots of them. But I just believe that one of the opportunities God's given us as the people of God in this moment is to say, wow. How can we become a more serving people to our city, to our community? How can we become a better witness? How can we become a people of uncommon love? So you know what? I don't want to belittle or minimize whatever fear you're struggling with. Listen, fear is a beast. Fear is real. And I want you to know that progressively God wants his love to just keep pushing fear out of your life. So would you stand to your feet with me all over the building? Let's just raise our hands to heaven. And let's just declare today God's victory over 